This trip through Telehell is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care, hair care, and beauty products. With over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands, The Skin Store has you covered for all your hair, cosmetics, supplements, and of course, skin care needs. Find your favorite brands like Elta MD, New Face, Olaplex, and more all in one place with gifts with every purchase. Right now, The Skin Store is offering our listeners 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD. That's P-O-D for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod.list. Skin Store. Have the confidence to tackle the day ahead. Exclusions apply. Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Tele-Hell. Well, well, well. You again. Alan Carr, a guy I've known for a couple years, is here. How you doing? Hello. Uh, hello. Hello. Would you give us a one-minute summary of your career? Um... Manage people's careers, help like them. Who? Anne like who? Like Margaret, Marvin Hamlish, Nancy Walker, Stocker Channing, and now and Peter Sellers. What about your movie producer? And now uh, uh, Robert Stigwood and I uh, got involved with a picture called Survive about the Andy's plane crash. Yeah. He was very helpful in giving me a, a start in a different area of the movies, and we did Grease together. And it's going to be a big hit. And it's if like you listen to our 12th episode last year about what many consider to be the most infamous moment in Oscar history, then you should already know about the many highs and lows of one Mr. Alan Carr. The Snow White musical number at the 61st Annual Academy Awards being the lowest of lows. And if you haven't listened, I'm going to give you a few minutes to listen to that one, not just so you can be up to speed on everything, but also so we can avoid pointless exposition here in order to be caught up on today's subject. Go ahead. I'll wait. Just wait. So, how about that local sports team of ours? I hear they're doing really good and or blowing it. It's called being generic and vague, folks. Okay, caught up? Good. Because at the end of that episode, we sort of telegraphed that Snow White wasn't the only dumb thing to happen during the 1989 Oscar ceremony. (laughs) No, I don't sing and I don't dance. I am a thespian in the classic sense. If Snow White was the hail of gunfire that riddled the soon-to-be corpse of the 1989 Oscar show... What we're about to discuss is the shot to the head that causes the corpse to hit the ground of Telehell. Now that I assume that you've been re-educated into who Alan Carr was, as well as what he did to quote-unquote improve that year's Oscar ceremony, it's time to introduce some new characters to a B-plot of the 89 Oscars. (music) 
chief of which is legendary composer Marvin Hamlish, one of only 16 people to EGOT himself for all the major showbiz awards. This was a guy who either wrote or composed the music for just about every major movie and sometimes TV show that you could think of from the 1960s all the way to his passing in 2012. Everything from The Way We Were, to the theme to The Spy Who Loved Me, to even the theme song to ABC's Good Morning America in the 70s. And surprisingly, that's not even the strangest piece of trivia I could find about the guy. He also co-wrote this 1965 sleeper hit for the equally legendary Leslie Gore. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. A song that I would legitimately not know about were it not for Chief Wiggum. But I digress. Anyway... Because of all the accolades he received over the years, it felt like a natural choice for Hamlish to be selected by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to be the musical director for the 1989 ceremony. So, as much as we want to blame Alan Carr 100% for everything that happened that year, some of the blame has to be deferred to others, including Hamlish. He, along with Carr co-lyricist Fred Ebb, and choreographer and future high school musical puppet master Kenny Ortega came up with an idea for a showpiece that would take place in the middle of the ceremony. Since the Snow White number featured stars of yesteryear, it only made sense for Carr to assemble almost two dozen of some of the biggest rising stars of that era and sing their hearts out not just to the ceremony's attendees, but possibly any future casting agents who would happen to be in the audience that night. In alphabetical order, these stars of tomorrow included Keith Coogan, Patrick Dempsey, Corey F- <laughs> Really? <laughs> okay, 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 come on. <clears throat> Corey Feldman, Jolie Fisher, Trisha Lee Fisher, Savion Glover, Carrie Hamilton, Melora Hardin, Ricky Lake, Matt Latanzi, Chad Lowe, Tracy Nelson, Patrick O'Neill, Corey Parker, D.A. Pauley, Tyrone Howard Jr., Holly Robinson, Christian Slater, and Blair Underwood. And for the record, you're probably thinking the same thing that we're all thinking right now. Half of these people! Well, before you get the answer to that question, we still need people to introduce the number, which officially has the title of I Want to Be an Oscar Winner, even though the official YouTube video labels it as The Stars of Tomorrow. And since Carr was still on a kick about combining old stars and new, who better to introduce the act than a pair of comedy scions? Most notably, this guy. And this lady. Bob Hope and Lucille Ball would have the honor of introducing the piece. What's more, this would later turn out to be a poignant moment for Lucy fans the world over, as this would wind up being her final live TV performance before ultimately passing away roughly one month later, making it all the more awkward that one of her final acts as the Queen of Comedy is to introduce a piece that would earn laughs for all the wrong reasons. Reasons that we'll get to... After the break. My baloney has a first name. It's O S C A R. My baloney has a second name. It's M A Y E R. Oh, I love to eat it and 
Oscar Mayer, the first name in Bologna. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the Internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. Four years ago, we introduced Chevy Citation, and it became America's most popular front-drive car. But that wasn't good enough for the engineers. Since that time, they've improved its performance, improved its ride, improved its comfort. And after making so many engineering refinements, we made one more change. The name, announcing Chevy Citation 2. Chevrolet! And you. Taking charge! Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. And so we return to March 29, 1989. Eternal Flame by the Bangles was at the top of the music charts. Eric Idle was about to star in a sitcom where he played a ghost. And approximately two hours after Snow White made Hollywood go temporarily insane, a now calm studio audience is greeted by another Hollywood legend, who just happened to be a grumpy old man. Ladies and gentlemen, Academy Award winner Walter Matha. Also, as a reminder, this was one of the rare times when the Oscars went without a host. As a result, this meant a lot of extra and, in some cases, excessive introductions to actual awards presenters. Kind of seems a little superfluous considering you already have the announcer from Wheel of Fortune introducing somebody, but we can blame that, among other things, on Alan Carr. Take it away, OG Oscar Madison. One of the stagehands uh, came over to me backstage and he said, uh, show is running pretty long tonight. He says, maybe it should be called Awards and Remembrance. A thinly veiled slap towards the ABC miniseries that aired around that time, but we didn't come here to bite the hand that feeds you. We came here to get a vamped up introduction to two legends. You know, the word legend gets tossed around rather loosely these days. Tonight, it is my privilege to introduce two people who not only personify comedy greatness, but who are among the only people I can think of who could get me to come here from Pacoima. <laughs> Words with a C in it are funny. Don't worry, Walter. We know you're much funnier with dialogue written by Neil Simon anyway. Uh, just get to the point, please. Ladies and gentlemen, Lucille Ball and Bob Hope. After a required by show business law standing ovation, Lucy and Bob try to show the hip people out there that they still got it after all these years. I haven't seen so many gorgeous girls since I spent Father's Day with Steve Garvey. <laughs> Really, Bob? You're gonna make me do research on top of other research? Okay, that's fine. I know this is gonna be a short episode anyway, so... Wikipedia, do your thing. Let's see... Steve Garvey... Former ball player for the Dodgers and the Padres... Messy divorce and custody hearing in 1989. Okay, thanks for that. 
Thankfully, Lucy pulls us back from the brink of obscure references. It, uh, it really is wonderful to be here, and a particular thrill, especially with you, Bob. It's a very secure feeling being up here with a man who has been on the Oscar show 26 times. That's true, yeah. And never won. You had to mention it, huh? Well... Hey, don't blame us, Bob. Aren't you the one that kept on making this joke every time you hosted? Welcome to the Academy Awards. Or as, as it's known at my house, Passover. Fortunately, the king of self-deprecation knows how to handle it. What are you going to do with Not it? that I haven't begged, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I've been on my knees more often than Billy Swaggart. Anyway... <laughs> And I'll even forgive Hope for the fact that he actually combined the name of two famous preachers because, let's face it, he was pushing 90 years old by this time in his life. Regardless, let's get to the reason why we're here in the first place. Here we are with 19 triple threaders. Make a note of their name now. You're going to be hearing a lot from these kids. Ladies and gentlemen, the Oscar winners of tomorrow, in a number especially written for this year's show by Marvin Hamlish and Fred Ebb and choreographed by Kenny Ortega. So now that we've got our old-school Borscht Belt comedy out of the way, we get to the meat of the matter. The piece begins with young Blair Underwood and a pre-Rodney Pete, Holly Robinson, belting out the opening notes. And, to their credit, they carry themselves pretty well here. then shown the rest of the Youngbloods, many of whom we see before ample amounts of plastic surgery, by the way, with future star of Baby Bob, Jolie Fisher, leading things off. Don't tell me how to dress, I'll know the way. Don't tell me about my speech, I'll know just what to say. And then comes the crazy part. <laughs> oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Gee, but it's great to be an Oscar winner. A super trooper, super duper Oscar winner. I am most humbly... The best way I could describe these next few minutes is if a high school tried to put on its own Academy Awards, which stands to reason because, as a reminder... The guy who directed all the high school musical movies gets a chunk of the blame for this number. I'm also getting some serious Vanessa Bear vibes from this. Seeing the young starlets perform the way they're doing so kind of reminds me of her child actor character from SNL. What a thrill it is to be here! News, talking about news. Hey, Michael Che, did you hear today? That's all in the news. Nevertheless, we push forward with the piece. And with it, some of the individual achievements. Some good, others a uh, little too over the top. Anyway, on to actual talent, as the stage is now taken over by a pre-McDreamy, pre-nose job Patrick Dempsey, who at this point in his career already made a name for himself in various teen movies of the 80s. But now he's out in front of a mature audience. How does that work out? I trained and I studied and I went to those who teach movement and posture and language and speech. Twen, twen, fly high. Oh, I've been hit in the eye. 
<laughs> and to think, he left Grey's Anatomy to do commercials for Poland Spring. Allegedly. From there, we get some minor technical difficulties in the sound department. I was lovely in Ibsen. And perfect in Chekhov. Speak up! We can't hear you. And I did all my Jane Fonda exercises in case. Praise the Lord! Praise, praise, praise the Lord! Yeah, you came to the wrong place for that. If any lords are going to be praised down here, it's either going to be our boss, Jim Jones, Idi Amin, or Rachel Ray. She knows why. We're then joined by Rob Lowe's brother Chad, who I'm guessing is there either as Rob's plus one for the evening, or to help deflect the hate that the elder Rob just got for participating in the Snow White number hours earlier. <laughs> no. I don't sing, and I don't dance. I am a thespian in the classic sense. Don't talk to me about paying dues. I waited tables in Manhattan for ten years and some of the finest restaurants in West Hollywood. I have studied extensively. I studied with Stella. I studied with Strasberg. I study Stanislavski. I am a serious actor. I was on Dynasty! Well, if you ever wondered why Rob Lowe's career is practically bulletproof, I guess we can call Chad Lowe his Kevlar vest. After witnessing more ham than you can find at an average deli, young McDreamy returns and tries to make up for that last bit of pantomime. And truth be told, he's actually not that bad of a hoofer. A kind of hoofing that would not be possible without new Poland Spring origin. That's not a commercial, by the way, I'm just stating facts. Speaking of dancing, it's time for the whitest edition of Soul Train you've ever seen. Complete with, oh boy, Corey Feldman putting on some of the Michael Jackson moves that made him air quotes famous. Okay, pause it for a sec. I know picking on Corey Feldman seems like super incredible low-hanging fruit, and normally that would be the case. However, given the benefit of overwhelming doubt, even Feldman himself has expressed his fair share of regrets in doing the piece, as evident by this interview that he gave People magazine a few years ago. Like, I remember seeing the faces of the people that I kind of already knew, and kind of getting that swallow in my stomach when I first went out, like, Oh God, they're all here, and they're all watching, and I can't mess up. <laughs> the dancing was good, but the singing was uh, left a bit to, to be desired. So hopefully I get another uh, opportunity to do something the right way at the Academy Awards, where I can actually have control of the situation and make it good. And not for nothing, but I think this finally explains the Josh Fenderman sketch from Mr. Show with Bob and David, which I recommend you watch once we're done here. Let's move on. But before we can say what, or why, or how, 
we move on to a more classical form of dance featuring two people I've never heard of before or even since this moment, Tracy Nelson and D.A. Pauly. Though to be fair, Nelson has gone on to a steady career of guest star work on TV shows and in movies. But Pauly would actually flat out disappear from the face of the earth after making his award-lacking performance as Fireman Number 1 in the film Hocus Pocus. And I thank IMDB for such pivotal information. After the gracefulness of that part, we then whiplash ourselves to some of the actors buckling some swash as we're treated to sword fights for some reason. Okay? And as we wonder which alternate reality Christian Slater can sword fight while Ricky Lake is his damsel in distress, it's just about time for another palate cleanser. And just as McDreamy did before, another hoofer does the job. Take it away, Savion Glover! As the future bringer-on of Denoise and Defunk tries his best with damage control, all the starlets return to the stage to bring it home. Whether that home be condemned, nursing, or psychiatric is anybody's guess. And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> and as the kids pour it on... All the stars and potential future Walmart employees of tomorrow gather around a giant Oscar prop as though it was a goddamn golden calf. Kneel before your god, Babylon! So, that was a thing that happened. And again, if you heard the Snow White story, you already know what happened after the fact. Only in this number's case, there wasn't any Disney-sized litigation involved. However, I do feel the need to add the following postscripts before we go any further. First, Lucille Ball made specific mention that every one of the people featured here have potential to be future Oscar winners. But the records show that none of them, that's right, 0% of the people featured in this piece were ever nominated for an Oscar, let alone ever won one. In fact, of the people who took part in this, it's probably safe to say that Maybe 40% of them have actually went on to somewhat successful careers. And at the risk of offending certain people, I'll leave it to you to figure out who's who. But even more insulting is the fact that this production number actually kind of cannibalized the Oscars that year in a unique way. In our Snow White episode, we mentioned that as a producer on the show, Alan Carr was also looking to make a couple of aesthetic changes, including awarding somebody by saying, and the Oscar goes to, instead of, and the winner is. But that's nothing compared to how they wound up making room for this piece to begin with, largely by sacrificing the part of the show where we would get to hear all the songs nominated for Best Original Song. And that, to me, is about 89 shades of wrong. For a number of reasons. One being that most people like to tune into the Oscars to hear some of those songs being done live, just like on any other awards show. Not unlike McDreamy and Savion Glover dancing, the song nominees are often the palate cleanser or, to some other people, the bathroom break needed to clear your head so you can be ready for the rest of the ceremony. The other reason being that the combination of the two elements may have caused the Oscars to run a little over its time limit. 
To which I say... Duh! It's the Oscars! Of course the ceremony is going to run a little long. What difference would eliminating three performances do? Especially when you have one giant convoluted ten-minute piece in the middle of it all to begin with. So where do the stars of tomorrow get enshrined into the concrete slabs of telehell? It's getting so that you have to sell your soul to become famous in this day and age. And our nine circles is the express line. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. While it would be easy to simply copy and paste the same things we said about the Snow White number onto analysis of this performance, let's just rule that out right now. Yes, both performances came from the same Oscar telecast, but comparing both would be like the old Alan Alda expression of comparing apples to Volkswagens. One thing we can transfer over here, however, was how pissed off members of the Academy were over this ceremony, and that some changes needed to be made to improve on the quality for the following year. Enter Billy Crystal. Hell hath no fury like the wrath of the AMPAS. As for the actual performance, this was kind of in a class by itself. A class that easily flunked because of the good intentions that fell flat on its face. Particularly, Lucille Ball's notion that any of the participants would ever become Oscar winners. A prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. So until the day comes when we hear the words Academy Award winner Ricky Lake, we have to mark it for a conditional case of fraud. To say nothing of the fact that most of the participants' careers and Oscar chances, especially the mysterious whereabouts of D.A. Pauly, will perpetually wind up in limbo. Not to mention Alan Carr, jettisoning the performances for Best Original Song in favor of this even happening in the first place. And there's nothing more full of treachery than a rookie award show producer that thinks he knows what he's doing. In a surprise twist, however, in doing research for this episode, I found out that the 1989 Oscar telecast was actually the highest-rated show in five years at that point, which should sound good in theory, but with the kind of spectacles that we were exposed to on that show, the bad news was everybody was watching. And yet, ABC, the network that's been airing the ceremony since the dawn of time, wound up reaping the benefits and bolstering their bottom line anyway earning the network some collateral greed. At the same time, I can't help but wonder if some executive at the network was actually paying attention to the performance and thinking to himself, hmm, maybe this Dempsey kid might look good in a lab coat someday. Nah. The Oscars Stars of Tomorrow performance earns five out of nine circles of telehell. And while I do feel a sigh of relief for covering two of the most infamous moments from the most notorious Oscar ceremony known to mankind, at the end, you kinda have to feel for Alan Carr. Never in all of showbiz has there been a more mercurial figure in terms of success and failure. Especially the failure part. And yet, at the same time, one has to wonder what putting on a pop-cultural disaster like the 1989 Oscars could do to the guy. Certainly enough to keep him off the radar for the rest of his life, but if you want a long answer as to what happened to him after 1989, do yourself a favor and look up a documentary called The Fabulous Alan Carr. It's on YouTube and a lot of other places you can stream videos. Short answer, even though the Oscars were the proverbial nail in the coffin for his career, Carr could honestly care less about what people think, 
In an interview that took place on Boston's ABC affiliate the day before the ceremony, Carr put his hopes for things running smoothly this way. Well, I mean, the, the Academy is a very distinguished group of uh, older people, and I don't know if they... I always felt... I always felt of myself as a kid from Chicago. I've never grown up, so I guess maybe that's good because I'm the ultimate fan. So I look at the Oscar show as what it would be like, like you all at home, sitting in bed with the pizza, watching magic happen. I think this year magic is going to happen. A well-intentioned thought. But keep in mind an old expression. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And the 1989 Oscars remain living proof of that. Next time on Telehell, this show brings new meaning to the phrases grody to the max and gag me with a spoon, dude. The creators of that 70s show return to a different time. How do you get it to stand up? How do you get it to stand up? Introducing that 80s show. No, it's not a payphone. It's a portable phone. Wednesday, January 23rd on Fox. Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me. Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. (laughs) 